everyone and welcome back to another episode of Deets with Dita. I'm your host Nandita and today we are back with an, another episode. Surprise, hello, I'm back. <laughs> um, and this week's episode I wanted to talk about uh, VFX. Now you're probably thinking, Nandita, why are you doing an episode on VFX when you have already done a pretty great episode on VFX with an actual uh, VFX supervisor from ILM? Well, I also thought this too, and the reasoning behind this is um, recently on Twitter, there's been a lot of noise about VFX and what it is and what it means to be, what it means to have good VFX, what it means to have bad VFX, misunderstandings that um, can occur still even today about what VFX actually is. And in this episode, I tend and like I intend to kind of break down some of these like misconceptions and break down, you know, some of the reasoning behind why we might not be getting good CGI or are we getting good CGI or are we getting good VFX, you know? And um, this is something that's really, really like passionate for me, and like I really, I really love this topic a lot because VFX almost feels like the bridge between computer science, which is something I absolutely adore. Uh, and actual filmmaking. So I thought, if anyone can try and tackle this subject and try and talk to you about this and try and make um, make you guys who might not be as clued up about what VFX actually entails. And I learned quite a lot researching for this episode as well. So that's the basis of today's episode. I'm going to talk about what VFX is, why why it's a problem in the sense of why bad VFX can be a problem. Um, the negative examples of uh, VFX that I've seen over the years, some of the more positive examples of VFX I've seen over the years, um, talking about as well uh, the VFX series that is on Disney Plus at the moment called Light and Magic, talking about the evolution of ILM and how it how it came to be today through the great mind of George Lucas, and um, also talking about some of the tech that I've seen in the in most uh, recent years that has intrigued me about how I feel the uh, VFX industry is evolving continuously and it makes me excited for you know if, if this is where we are now like how how can we go on later and uh, finally talking about the future so like what how I think we should continue like the VFX industry in a way that will not that will make it sustainable. So we want to ensure that the VFX like industry continues to flourish and grow like at the rate that it is. But the problem is, with some of the things I'll talk about in the episode, we might be driving it and running it into the ground. So with that being said, let me just get into the episode. Now, what is VFX? When I talk to a lot of people that I know um, and we just have on the fly, off the cuff discussions about VFX, what tends to come to mind first, particularly for my generation, so I'm, we, my generation has lived in the era of, you know, continuous CG and VFX via computer means. Like, it would be more so my parents' era where we grew up with more practical effects, right? But we are fortunate enough, well, I'm fortunate enough that I've lived in a lifetime where, you know, CGI isn't something that, it, I mean, of course it astounds me, but it ties and leans more into the realism side of, of CG rather than, uh, like, trying to make sure that 
the, the CGI that you are doing or the VFX that you are doing are a lot more leaned into the, like, you don't want to notice it. You, you want to make, you're trying to question whether it actually is VFX or whether they actually had a practical costume or whether they had a practical, um, like, prop built for it. It's, it's more of that than in back in the like the days of when my mom used to go watch films in the cinema like there were a lot more of an emphasis on stop motion practical effects and that end of vfx and i think one thing i want to get out of the way completely and first which is something that i also struggled with um grasping my head around and actually becoming more familiar with and comfortable with is that vfx does not equal cgi full stop like it's VFX is such a broad spectrum of various different skills and disciplines that come together and create what VFX actually is. And it took me it took me a while to get my head around this because we are so we live in an era where we're so we're so ingrained to think that VFX and CGI can be used like synonymously without like alleviating or getting rid of um, the other definitions that VFX has. So I wanted to actually discuss some of the um, other types of visual effects. So there are actually nine that I read up on, um, and one of them being CGI. But there are so many others. I mean, I mentioned stop-motion animation. So the whole idea of uh, you have modeling artists who create actual practical uh, models of, let's say, a great example would be in Star Wars. They made the practical models of all of the... Um, Actually, that's not a good example of um, <laughs> that's not a good example of stop motion. But like a good example would be, I think Gilmore del Toro, uh, the director of The Shape of Water, and goodness, what else has he done? He did Pan's Labyrinth as well. He is cu uh, currently in the process of making a Pinocchio stop motion, which essentially is just you know a series of pictures being taken of a model um to make it look like it's moving when someone that's just frame by frame is like a, a, a frame by frame there's a um a picture and like it's moving and whatnot and it actually makes it look like it's animated and this used to happen so much um we, it's rare to see it these days but i think we're coming into an era where loads of filmmakers want to respect the craft and want to go back and actually um, do more stuff with stop motion because it it invokes a certain sense of nostalgia I think within uh, people to actually use stop motion so that's an, uh, one discipline of visual effects then you have prosthetic makeup prosthetic makeup in its own right is definitely a VFX I think pe some people may consider it its own category or for me I think I thought prosthetics were really more on the like wardrobe department side or like design side of um of, of like a, a film process but prosthetics actually come under the um come under visual effects because it is a visual effect that you are doing it's just you're applying it to a human um in a makeup chair for god knows how many hours um and a great example of this would be um Vecna in Stranger Things I mean a lot of Vecna's um a lot of what Vecna actually is, is done by heavy, heavy prosthetic makeup and, you know, gear that um, Jamie Bowery, I think, Bowery Campbell, I think that's who played Vecna, him, like he, he sat in the makeup chair for hours and hours and hours and um, I think it very much paid off 
in my head, when I looked at that, I genuinely thought, you know, they probably would have CG'd it and whatnot. So it was very surprising to see that they actually really invested the time in doing practical effects for it. So, or a prosthetic makeup or practical effects for it. So, you know, it's, again, we're living in an era where it's very hard to differentiate this stuff. So you tend to, to think one thing. Uh, now some more technical ones. So there are some some technical ones that I, I quite enjoy, which uh, one of them includes digital comping. Or, um, yeah, so digital comp. And essentially, digital comp is assembling multiple images to create a final image. And I think the digital comp comes around, like, it's heavily linked with CG. It's heavily linked with, you know, other, like, um, matte painting, which I will get onto, where you're... You're taking, and this happens today as well, very, very frequently and very often, where you have multiple shots or you have um, a shot and then you have, I guess, an effect that you want to put on. Like, say, for instance, maybe you've done a 3D model of um, a character that you want to place in a shot that hasn't that isn't in there. Or, for example, you have a green screen, which I will come on to the technical term of what uh, using green screen is. Um, you'll have all these stuff together uh, but digitally comping them together. So that's its own discipline, actually being able to merge all of these disciplines together seamlessly to make it look like it's just one complete shot. So that's digital comping. Now I mentioned uh, green screens. Now, green screens and blue screens are in itself and in its own right, its own discipline of um, VFX. And this can come under green screens and blue screens, but it's typically called chroma key. So chroma key is like the formal definition of, um, of a green and blue screen. So if you want a little, you want to impress someone with your vocab about it and you want to seem a little bit more smart about your VFX knowledge, chroma key um, is the word that you should be looking for. Now, there are so many others. I did mention matte painting. Now, matte painting is something that I got to learn a lot more about in the ILM um, Light and Magic Disney Plus series, which I'll get onto because I have so much to say about it. Um, but matte painting is essentially you have a... Um, typically done on glass, which I found very interesting, but you have these artists draw backgrounds where they don't want to build a huge set for it and they want to make something this was before the era matte paintings were typically used before the era of blue screens green, uh, green screens and also even um the the volume which i will get on to talking about um because the volume is such an interesting piece of technology that has emerged about um within the vfx uh spectrum or realm and i think um and I think matte painting was like the first steps to get to that point. And artists would just paint on these pieces of glass to very, mu very much done on Star Wars as well, um, the earlier Star Wars, to create these vast like uh, backgrounds to make you feel like you, you are actually there when really they're just on a set. And I think matte painting is so, so beautiful and glorious to, to think about. I don't know how much it is used uh, today. I guess it's based on a filmmaker's preference um, or what they feel like or what they've been suggested to do. But matte painting seems so like, I don't know, it feels like very romanticized in my head of like, oh, this feels like so traditional and so um, 
just so exciting to think about someone actually painting, like sitting there, sitting there for hours painting this world that you then get to see. I guess it is the same for someone who does the the creating of um, of like the the backgrounds that are put on the blue screens and the the green screens. But I don't know. There's just something a little bit more. Um, I don't know, exciting about a matte painting. Um, but yeah, that's just my, my hot take on that. Um, then you've got a couple of others. So you've got control, motion control photography. So this is camera equipment that is specifically designed to, um, you know, to track the movement of a specific thing. So this counts as a visual effect because in real time when you are, this is something again that, made me think about VFX and what my definition of, of, of visual effects actually is. And, you know, the idea of something tracking something else's movement in a camera shot, that's not very, that's not something that we can do. Um, like there are in, in a certain way we can have our eye line like rotate and follow what we are trying to see. But, you know, in the ways that that, that we are tracking some some of these spaceships, for example. I'm using a lot of Star Wars references because the ILM series explained it really well and I thought it was pretty cool uh, to use that as an example. But, like, we're not going to move with the spaceship, you know? We're not going to move with a car when it's driving, you know, outside from the outside perspective of it. And all of these counts as a visual effect because we wouldn't be able to look at that or see that normally. Um... Which I thought, which I think is a really nice way of thinking about motion control t uh, photography. Um, and then finally, I think this is finally, I have spoken a lot about um, a lot of these different types of visual effects. Um, but one that I found quite hard to get my head around. Um, so I hope I explain it well. But it's bullet time. Um, also called the matrix, matrix effect or time slicing. But it is essentially using multiple cameras to give the impression of time slowing down or standing still altogether. Now, obviously, we can't see time slowing down. We can't see time stopping altogether. That is something that only really exists through, you know, pausing a TV show or when a TV show or a, or a film actually shows this stuff. So I think that um, actually seeing, thinking about, the best example to think about, which I, when I was researching about bullet time, because the first place where I, where I looked it up, it didn't have a great explanation, but loads of people use the Matrix as an example. So, you know, when Neo is, is doing his like weird bending backwards thing, dodging the bullets and stuff, and like the time slows down and like you're, you're seeing the, the bullets like pass him and whatnot. Um, and yeah, like that is a form of bullet time. And I think that's uh, that's really cool and something I'll, I'll be thinking about for a while. But and finally, I completely forgot to mention one more discipline, which is virtual cinematography, which essentially includes 3D models, renderings and scans. So this can be done for like motion capture suits. This can be done for actually modeling, for example, a character like Thanos, where you want to keep some of Josh Brolin's, the guy, uh, the actor who plays um, Thanos's expressions, whilst also making him not look like Josh Brolin, like completely, because he's meant to be like this purple, um, huge titan. Um, and I think uh, that's a, a probably more easily recognizable um, type of VFX and visual effects because we are quite familiar with this whole like 3D modeling and rendering and scans of like a person and whatnot. 
Um, but yeah, like th that's that's VFX. I feel like do you guys I feel like I want to give you guys a sense of this is like a lot. Like there is a lot of um a lot of components to VFX and there is a lot of um there's a lot of things to think about that I didn't necessarily think about until I actually properly researched this and it made me appreciate the discipline a lot more and I guess made me feel a bit careful about how I use, you know, words talking about visual effects because, you know, on I feel like the biggest thing that has been going around recently is has VFX gotten worse? And um, particularly... I feel when people make this argument, they are not, they're not, they're not talk, they shouldn't be talking about VFX as a whole, as, as I had mentioned previously. They should, I think the, the main thing that they are thinking about when they're thinking about VFX being poor is CGI. And I think we are slowly, the, the, the whole reason why I wanted to do this episode is to try and get everyone to understand, I guess, a bit more that it's, that they're, they're not the same. They, maybe one is like a subset of the other but you know you can't just label an entire like massive set that includes you know the prosthetics the stop motion to be to be getting worse when it's it really is just cg artists that are getting taken the toll of but i will talk more about that in a little bit now why is this a problem why why is bad vfx a problem and I think it boils down to the fact of we as humans know we can tell when something looks real and we can tell when something looks quite off, kind of like the uncanny valley. So if you haven't, if you're not familiar with this concept, it's like almost a a graph or a valley because it, it look, the graph kind of looks like a valley is the point. But it's based on comfort levels of what humans feel very comfortable with in what they see what they are uh, familiar with in um in more of a horror sense i feel like the uncanny valley uh, does take um precedence to horror things for example like dolls um you know corpses and whatnot um and if you have a look i mean you can google the uncanny valley and it shows you a nice diagram of like what things come under it but i feel like the uncanny valley can also I feel like it's evolved to a point where it doesn't just need to be thinking about horror stuff, but it can also, you can also, we're in a time where we're so competent. We are, as um, as film watchers and as moviegoers, we are competent in, we know what should look correct, we know wh what it's meant to look like, even though, for example, something like the Iron Man suit or, you know, the, oh goodness, uh, like Hulk, for example, we don't necessarily have an idea how it's going to translate onto the screen, but if it looked wrong or if it looked weird or if it didn't look right, like it could be plausible that this could be in real life, then we'll most definitely point it out and we'll, we'll feel uncomfortable with it. So it is so important for these VFX artists to ensure that this whole idea of realism needs to be upheld. You know, there are expectations that audiences um, audiences have. And I think where this starts to crumble and where this starts to deteriorate a little bit is uh, coming from like a post-pandemic climate. I mean, I know we are still, I still believe that we are still quite in the mix of, of being in this pandemic and it's not over yet, but I feel like we are in a place where, you know, filmmaking is, is, 
is happening a lot rapidly than it was back in 2021 and 2020. Um, and we're seeing, you know, a rampant rise for companies wanting to use VFX, um, particularly CGI. And I think now I will switch on to more talking about CGI because I feel there are some, there are some things to be said about what's going on with CGI at the moment. And these companies are just churning out and constantly asking of VFX workers, um, specifically CGI artists, to to deliver so much more content than we than we have ever imagined or asked for them because VFX uh, v, uh, sorry CGI is becoming a replacement for um, people being there or being on sets or you know being on location and um, in a like a post pandemic world that's becoming increasingly important uh, but how is this impacting the VFX industry you know this is it's something that is impacting the entirety of the VFX image uh, uh, industry because the image of the VFX industry boils down to CGI. And I now want to talk about some of the negative and positive um, CGI examples that we have seen over the years. Just to contextualize the expectations that we have as audience, uh, as moviegoers, as uh, film watchers, you know, to, to see what what do we like about it? What do we not like about it? When have we noticed it's bad? When have we noticed it's good? And then kind of tie into what's happening with the industry in itself because um, there are some interesting, interesting things and developments that have been going on in the social media sphere that I think need to be addressed. So let's get into it let's go on to the negative examples first because I feel like let's start off with the negatives and then we can talk about some of the more innovative um things that the VFX uh sorry the CG industry has done and I am I'm going to be moving to talk more about CGI because I feel like the question of the podcast shouldn't be is VF has VFX gotten worse I think it, it should be has CGI gotten worse but I will purposefully leave the title as VFX just as a way to kind of get you guys to understand the difference between the two that's my big point that's my big takeaway from this episode you guys need to know this um <laughs> I'm saying this as if like you have a test on this later uh which you know you never know I could surprise you with a pop quiz but I don't know how I would get your responses but you know <laughs> it's <laughs> it is the it is the vibe that I'm going for <laughs> full on teacher mode um but let's talk about some negative examples. So I think some big examples of um, of CG that I feel like have a lot of misconceptions uh, attached to it would be um, Aladdin's Genie and Sonic the Hedgehog, the original uh, concept art of Sonic the Hedgehog. So if you guys don't know, um, Back in days of yore, which is was to be honest, like post, like pre-pandemic, like we had loads of films coming out that used full character CG, like modeling. Uh, like we had the Aladdin's Genie, where you had motion capture images of uh, Will Smith's face um, with a bunch of dots on it, and then suddenly that turned into Aladdin. And loads of people were very unhappy and unimpressed with the character design, or the C sorry, more so the CG of um of the genie and it became like everyone was slamming the cg of this of the the um this character and they were saying oh the vfx was so bad the cgi looks terrible blah 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 
But I don't think it was the CGI that was bad. I mean, I went for a week's... I mean, you guys already know if you listened to the other VFX episode I did. Um, I came for work experience for a week at um, ILM, so Industrial Light and Magic, one of the top VFX companies um, in the world. And they, you know, they explained this to me in a way of, well, you know we worked really hard and and it's quite heartbreaking to hear it from their perspective because you know they get flamed so much if the little tiniest thing doesn't look right it is immediately the cgi artists that get the blame uh, and the vfx companies that get the blame and when i spoke to these people about it they they genuinely felt like you know it's at the end of the day for something like aladdin's genie we felt we did a competent job of the actual CGI of it. So, you know, the, the the actual job at hand, because at the end of the day, they are, they are uh, freelance workers in a way of, they pick up work from different uh, filmmakers or production studios and um, they follow the um, creatives or the client's wishes. And, <laughs> wishes, Jeannie. Okay, sorry, I will stop that um and you know they they are following this set mandate and they've done i mean they have proven time and time again that they are a competent vfx and cgi company and they they have artists that do the work well but when you have a creative or a client who wants you to design a character in a particular way then you can't argue with the fact that the that the, potentially the CG artists are to blame. I mean, in some cases, there might be some instances where there isn't something that is up to scratch, and then maybe yes, you can you can go to go to their go to their blame, I guess. But when you think about it retrospectively, a lot of people had problems with the way that Genie looked, and that's not. I mean, the CGI artists and the the animators were only told to, you know, do it in the design that they were intended to for uh, that Guy Ritchie wanted, because obviously he's the director and he, he that's the way he wanted his vision of Genie to look like. So everyone's quick to blame the CGI artists for negative CG. I'm not saying that, like, I mean, I, I haven't studied it too intensely about, like, you know, whether the genie actually, genie CG is actually good. Um, but some people misconstrue um, character design and quality. So, yeah, people, people kind of misconstrue that. And another great example would be Sonic the Hedgehog. Everyone in the first trailer when Sonic the Hedgehog came out, audiences really, really disliked the way that Sonic the Hedgehog looked because once again, it's that sense of the uncanny valley, you know, people who had played Sonic the Hedgehog growing up have this very distinct idea of what they want this character to look like. And then suddenly when it doesn't start looking like that character, it it can feel very like, ah, no, I, we want, I want my Sonic the Hedgehog back. And it's, it's that idea of the uncanny valley of it doesn't look the way it's meant to or should be and therefore makes audiences feel uncomfortable for the wrong reasons because um, sometimes you want an uncomfortable effect um, and that's why the uncanny valley works um, so well for horror films because you can use that uncanny valley to your advantage to make audiences feel creeped out but sometimes you end up on the uncanny valley graph 
uh, in a, in a way that you don't intend to be because something something just isn't quite right, and that's where character design comes into it versus quality. So that's a big thing, you know, that I wanted to talk about. That character design does not equal the quality of CGI uh, being put forward. Uh, so that's something for you guys to think about uh, when when you when you look at um, examples of or when you think about or watching a film that heavily relies on a, a character being fully CG, you know. So something to think about. Now, <laughs> this is this is the bulk, the meaty the meaty part of the episode, um, which is Marvel's CGI. Uh, VFX specifically everyone's saying VFX but I think they're mainly just talking about the CGI and there are you know we've had as I've spoken about in my last episode with Marvel fatigue you know we have so much Marvel content coming out you know we are in the midst of She-Hulk coming out at the moment when we've already had you know Ms. Marvel come out this year we've had Doctor Strange Multiverse of Madness we've had uh, Thor Love and Thunder and we're we're sitting, we're all kind of sitting here and we're watching these films and the VFX, well, everyone, everyone's saying the VFX just aren't up to scratch. I'd argue it's the CG that maybe isn't looking up to scratch. I mean, examples that I can think of up the top of my head, you know, Jane Foster's hair in Thor Love and Thunder just wasn't, it wasn't it. It looked, it didn't look real. And I could tell that it didn't look real, you know? And then you've got She-Hulk, the original, um, the original uh, CG on the She-Hulk trailers were quite devastating. And you, you can tell because of this, this whole idea of like something just isn't, it doesn't feel quite right there. Because uh, we are competent, you know, the, these uh, CGI artists have to have to ensure that they are they are trying to mask what is real and what isn't real. But if we can immediately tell what isn't real for something that should be real, like for hair, for example, then that's where that's where this this whole thing kind of crumbles and breaks because the whole magic aspect of it is like it's kind of kind of broken and this is what's happening everyone's starting to feel annoyed and angry by um by the quality of cgi that's coming out and therefore they are taking to to the means of social media so like twitter you know being the cesspool of promoting hate that it is um just continuously like going at it and being super super negative about it and that's then this translates to the the vfx artists or the cgi artists and they're like well this is kind of we feel kind of upset by this and i feel like they had bitten their tongue for long enough to then now in more recent months i think in the last month we've had several reddit posts from people who are working within CG companies um, or VFX companies to do the visual effects for Marvel films, particularly the CGI for Marvel films, talking about how they are a horrendous client to work with and how now we're not seeing all sides of the story. I think we are, once again, as I, as I mentioned before, we're very quick to jump on what's wrong without understanding what is actually going on and underlying behind the scenes. I mean, this, this just 
is an implication of, of anything that goes on in, in life. It doesn't just have to be about films. Like, you know, everyone is so quick to assume one thing about someone without hearing the full picture. And um, I think that's what was happening with all of the, I guess, buzz and um, uh, bad press, I guess, the that these VFX and CGI artists were getting. So... Um, but you hear these stories about how they're a horrible client. They, you know, they find out that deadlines have been pushed earlier by media rather by rather than by them uh, by the company themselves. And like, you know, the communication is just not there. And it's horrific because then I, a director that I look up to um, tremendously. Everyone, everyone knows this on the pod. Um, but if you're new here, hello. Um, I'm a big, big fan of Taika Waititi. Like any, I, I, my joke is that I'm a platonic simp for Taika Waititi. Um, and he, he is just genuinely a great creative. But then, but then I hear the the stuff that I mean, I'm, I see it. I'm not. It's not even like I'm hearing it. I mean, I'm literally hearing it from the horse's mouth of. You know, this VFX breakdown that they had. Um, firstly, I don't understand why the director is doing the VFX breakdown. Maybe, I mean, directors like George Lucas, they, they are intrinsic. And I think even John Favreau are very intrinsically um, heavily involved in the VFX process. And they really want to learn and know more. But then you have something like... Um, something like Taika Waititi's flaming of VFX in a breakdown video. I mean... It just feels like such a slap in the face to all VFX artists, right? Like, it feels like they have just been underappreciated yet again and um, made to be the villain yet again. When really, I think the way that I see it and the angle I see it, this is like where I am, where I'm coming from from this, is that I genuinely don't think VFX or CGI is pre-planned for in pre-production stages as well as it should be i think that i think that there, there just should be just so much more of a better emphasis of if we are going to use cgi in the scene how are we going to make it easier for the artists how are we thinking about the vfx artists in mind and you know back in the uh, the you know watching this ilm documentary has made me feel so like I mean, if I were to ever get into filmmaking, like you want to, and if you, and if I was using visual effects or practical effects or whatever I was using or CGI, like I would ensure that I am talking very closely with these VFX artists and making sure they're on set with me, ensuring that everything is correct. Everything is the way that I want it to be. Um, and, you know, not having them have to you know not me being lazy because I do think it's pure laziness of not planning for it in the first place I think that you should have better emphasis of just you know going for um you know going for I think there should be a bigger emphasis on you know planning it having VFX artists more involved and that way you're ensuring that you you have the best product that you can possibly have. I think because CG is so readily available these days, I think people people abuse it and take it for granted and then force the VFX artists to work harder than they should do 
on specific shots that could have been made 10 times easier by one specific change on set. And, like, this is just coming from someone who doesn't really, like, understand... Well, I have somewhat competence about the CG industry and VFX industry, but, like, it just feels like common sense, right? Surely this feels like common sense, but I feel like this it's just not happening. And it feels like it's just not happening, and it really irritates me because it's like, ah! And then you have someone like Taika Waititi, who I respect a lot, and then he's coming out... And even after the film is released, he's pointing out some of the bad visual effects um, and almost not taking ownership for it. You know, he's like almost stepping aside and being like, that's not my problem. That was someone else's problem. Whereas if you are a director of film, I feel like you have complete, you should have complete ownership of the quality of, of whatever you are putting out to an audience. It's your, it's your stamp on it. You should feel like you... You know, you are responsible for everything positive or negative uh, or, I don't know, just like the in-between as well, like of this film. It's it's just it's frustrating because it made me slightly lose a little bit of respect for Taika, uh, which is hard to say considering he's done some of my favorite films. But it just feels like if you're not respecting all these other people who are working so hard to create your vision... I don't know. I'd I'd feel I'd feel really hurt if someone if I worked on a big production for this person only to be, you know, have imagine I was the artist that did that particular frame or whatnot and I think I would just feel completely heartbroken and I'd have and I'd feel so depressed and sad that I wouldn't I wouldn't want to continue on cuz it was it's my role model saying that about my own work and it's it's so it's just so hard. I don't know. I don't know how I would cope um, in that respect, um, especially after the film had come out. I think I understand the, if the criticisms are there pre-film release and like if they're still in the the planning stages and editing stages. But you know, it's it's rough, and I personally would just I wouldn't have it. <laughs> I wouldn't have it. I wouldn't. I would, I would not have that at all. Um, so you know. These are these are some of the negatives that are going on in the VFX space, and as I've already mentioned as well, like the idea of, um, you know, CG like being really like being misconstrued as complete VFX, um, like it's it's just it's just frustrating, <laughs> very very frustrating. Um, but there are also like some funny negative examples, like everyone's favorite, the Mummy. Uh, the Mummy Returns, of which you had, I was it the, I can't remember whether whether it was the Rock, but it was the Scorpion um, character in The Mummy Returns, and it just doesn't look human like at all. Um, so yeah, and I feel like that might have just been time. Maybe it wouldn't have. They didn't have the correct um, VFX artists at the time working on it and whatnot, because that that was in an era where still VFX companies were popping up because ILM kind of set the, f the forefront and they were the, the ones to the ones to be around, I guess. But yeah, it's just insane. Actually insane. I, lo I look at that. I look at that scene quite often. I just think we have come a long way and that makes me happy. I'm like, yo, we've come a long way. We've, we've actually 
grown and improved in this discipline enough where we don't have to see stuff like that anymore unless it is intended like something in Free Guy I thought the the use of VFX in Free Guy was uh, specifically CGI in Free Guy was quite interesting when is this kind of a spoiler I feel like it is but dude the character dude like was purposefully because we're talking about a video game was purposefully done with bad CG or like stereotypically bad CG because the video game was incomplete and I thought that was so clever um from a VFX standpoint like yes I love that give me more of that that's such an interesting way of using CGI in a way that we haven't seen as an audience before um to you to emote like humor uh, and um yeah and like to drive that narrative forward very cool very very cool um, I feel like now that I'm already talking about a positive, I'll move on to some of the more notable and big positive um, examples of uh, good VFX. So let's talk about everyone's favorite to talk about because everyone has an opinion on Avatar. Uh, 2009 James Cameron's Avatar. Now, surprisingly, ILM didn't do the CG for um, Avatar. It was done by a company called Waiter Digital, and that is a VFX company, I believe, all the way uh, in the land of the Kiwis, so uh, New Zealand. And um, they basically, everything and anything that you thought about CG, like, was completely changed, or VFX, uh, for that matter, was completely changed when when Avatar came out because there was they were just breaking the boundaries of so many things and you know I haven't seen Avatar since I think it had come out or you know I'd seen clips of it or whatnot but I still look at the clips of that film in awe and I just I, I just get so I feel get filled with a sense of pride even though I'm like not even in this industry anyway but I feel like I'm like this this person who is in the industry in it without being in the industry if you get, if you get what I'm trying to say I don't know if it makes sense um but it's genuinely like one of the coolest things even today and I I I, I have not seen anything today that tops some of and, and bear in mind 2009 like over 10 years ago you'd think that we are like leaps and bounds because the VFX industry tends to um move at a very rapid and fast pace but Avatar was genuinely some of the most innovative, not even just from a visual standpoint, but from a technological standpoint. You know, the facial capture, like the motion capture that they used to capture, uh, I only know Zoe Saldana from that film and then the rest of them, I'm not quite sure. But like, you see these clips of like Zoe Saldana with like the whole camera, like uh, kind of mounted on to, to project her face with all the dots on her face to then see what it actually looked like in the film where it's like you can see that it is Zoe Saldana and like not only that but you're also dealing with an entire not only are you dealing with a CG person which is a hard thing to deal with in itself but you are dealing with an entire CG set and background like everything almost everything you see in um oh god i don't know what the name of the city is in avatar but the like the whole the the land of the navi i think the navi is what they are called um th like actually insane 
it's so colorful, so rich, so real. You know, even though it isn't like it isn't technically like um, something that we would see in actual in real life, because you're you're never going to see any of these like flying creatures or you know the cool tree that glows or whatnot. I mean, it would be pretty cool, but unfortunately, we can't see it. But like, it's 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 just oh, leaps and bounds, leaps and bounds. It makes me, and it was at the time. A, a film with the sheer number, the sheer volume of VFX shots that this had, and you know the po the amount of polygons that we use. And uh, for someone who doesn't know polygons, I feel like are um, I don't know how I would describe polygons actually, but it's it's intrinsically linked with the amount of VFX that you have um, within your film. And I think oh, I think polygons is just another word for like shape. So it's like the number of elements or shapes that, that are used, like, oh my god, unreal, the amount that they had used. Like, not even, nothing was coming close to it at that time. And, I mean, you can say whatever you want about the story of Avatar. I don't remember it. But, you know, sometimes a film doesn't need to be... Um, I feel like in that era of time, a film didn't need to um, have a story drive it as much when you had something as incredible as the VFX, a part of it. Um, I mean, there was a reason why it was the highest grossing film of all time for so long. I still think it is. Or maybe like Endgame and um, Avatar constantly flipping uh, around. Uh, I think it might pass it again because I think Avatar is getting a re-release in September of this year to prepare for the newest one, The Way of the Water, coming out. 14th of December, very close to my birthday. Uh, <laughs> I always, I always get, okay, tangent, big tangent. I always get like the biggest releases around my birthday and it makes me so happy. Like I get all the Star Wars films used to come out around like December time, like that particular, literally the week of my birthday particularly. And like, it was always great even when it was on my birthday as well. Like, ah, and then um, I got even a Spider-Man film around my birthday as well. I mean, okay, kind of, kind of a tangent, but you know. That week of December always gets the best films and I feel like it's great because it's the week of my birthday and I can always celebrate with films. And who doesn't always want to celebrate with films? I mean, well, a film nerd would, would say that, yes, but, you know. Okay, tangent over. I need to, <laughs> I need to get back on track, but that was just my little aside. Um, so Avatar just leaves. It was just great. It, and, uh, and I think if you haven't seen Avatar, it's such a great film to understand. Like, I don't know. Again, as I said, I don't know about, like, the plot. I, I don't know whether it still holds up today. I think I would need to go and watch that re-release in cinema. But it's just so... It's ah, it's like... It's it's the best way for you to to understand how VFX can act, or CGI can actually impact an audience to the level that it did at that time. You know, it was an IMAX film. It was when IMAX was still, like, uh, more recently developing and, like... Oh, oh my God! I mean, I could sing praises on the on the VFX of that film all day, all day long. <laughs> um, but yes, definitely check out Avatar if you haven't, because um, I think it's one to one to think about. Um, then another great example I would say is Pirates of the Caribbean's uh, Davy Jones. So if you're not familiar, I don't know whether it was in the first one. I'm pretty sure it wasn't in the first one, either second or third, but. You had Davy Jones, the character, the tentacle man. And, like, genuinely, something like that 
for the time that it had come out was so incredible because you had this man of like who basically had an an octopus as its head um super tentacly slimy you know the the environment in which the uh the cg is being captured um or sorry the the environment in which the character is within is constantly rainy constantly dark wet underlit so you've got like only candles lighting it because it's a pirate film um and constantly on the sea but you still get the level of detail with the tentacle movements for for a start that was that's an incredible feat to begin with the the movement of the tentacles but then you've got the actual the sheen of the actual um the surface of his actual face and it being quite always wet looking but then especially with the rain when it hits it but like in addition to that the reflections of of the light on the skin and then when the rain hits it it was like insanely good because these are all things that you wouldn't think about because like we're just used to when something looks like it's been lit correctly or it's got the correct shadows casting on it that particular time or whether it's got like that you know when it's raining it's gonna look wet not dry right and like these are all things that we don't we don't think about in the moment but all these visual effects and cg artists have to think about and i think um davy jones was an incredible feat and i always looked to that as one of my favorite pieces of cgi like it's just it's just great um such intricate details and i think that was done by ilm but i might be wrong in that but it's just cool very cool (laughs) i think nerding out is the best way i can think about it and now if we move on to more of a broader example i think it's quite quite nice to think about a broad example as well um but the superhero genre in general and this is where a little bit of my nerd comes out not to do with with vfx but more to do with just like the concept of post-postmodernism now you're probably thinking nandita what is post-postmodernism? Why are there two posts? Why should I care? What does this have anything to do with VFX? All very, very great questions, but I feel like it does have a big, big link to the superhero genre. I think I might have mentioned this in my um, Marvel Fatigue episode, um, so if you haven't seen that, check that out. But I'm going to reiterate it again here to just kind of give you an idea of the post-postmodernism concept. And the concept is that you, you, any media that you're reading, whether it be book, comic book, um, you know, music, um, a film, a TV show, or whatever, wherever you um, find your, like, fiction, essentially. The the key is fiction or whatever. Um, You, the concept is that you emulate, so if you're world building, for example, you emulate um a a society that models our own quite a lot taking the good and bad and um like this can be politically it could be politically it could be just in general like the way that our society looks and whatever and i think it it it's links with the superhero genre are quite almost they they almost go hand in hand like i feel like the the superhero genre and the uh and post-postmodernism can't 
they they can't live without each other they coexist in this beautiful way where um you know we we want to to emulate a a world cuz let's be honest when we're watching a film it is it's creating a world and and you have to there's a certain level of world building that you need to decide are you deciding whether you are having it within our society are you deciding it whether you are having it just in a specific thing i mean like th- these are all questions that you need to ask right and i think that because a lot of superhero films like to world build a society that basically is our own but with superheroes in it now um it's it's made the superhero genre like cg and visual effects have made the superhero genre so so much more so so intrinsically better and more real because you are incorporating this post postmodernism with within your actual vfx and cgi that you're using um you could argue that that's done for for most things but then again some worlds that that we that we visit when we go to the cinema um are tend to be quite fantasy driven so like for example lord of the rings films or um you even have the hobbit films or you know some to some extent the harry, po- harry potter films because they they seem like quite distant from some of the some of the films seem quite distant from our actual society because it's a, a whole different society within our own but then you could argue that's some form of post postmodernism but i feel like the superhero genre in particular tends to lean on the fact that it's just a normal world and then suddenly there are also superheroes there um and i think a great thing a great series that actually does post postmodernism really well with the superhero genre is the boys um even with um the cg in it as well because it's also taking the bad aspects of what uh, a superhero could be like but also i feel like that's also mentioned in some stuff like the mcu or the dceu even though it doesn't like being called the dceu um but yeah i think post postmodernism um and cg so cg has helped uh, cgi has helped essentially the superhero genre use post postmodernism in a way that drives the narrative forward in a very realistic way um so i guess that's that's the that's the roundabout way of i, I was trying to, i was trying to say um but yeah like it's there's a lot of positives and there there are a lot of negatives to do with um cg and i think it's important to see this um because I feel like a lot of us tend to focus on again the negatives all the time. So it's nice to see some of the positives sometimes because this excites me a lot. It it it's like it's a very cool thing to think about. So now um I want to briefly like go on a bit of a tangent and talk about the ILM series on Disney Plus. So it's called Light and Magic as I've already said and it's six episodes long um about an hour each so totals about 360 minutes in total which is a lot. Um, it took me a while to get through it, uh, hence why this episode has taken a long time to come out. Uh, but I think it was worth it because I had learned so much about, you know, the the evolution in the beginning of CGI and George Lucas's image and vision for, um, for how CGI is going to to live, like to to evolve and con- and continue on because. Um, as I'd mentioned, you know, matte painting and, like, uh, stop motion, prosthetic makeup, this, that, and the other, costumes, um, were all a big 
aspect of the beginning of of industrial light and magic and you know it's it's so incredible to see that evolution i mean george lucas i mean the founder did it because he wanted star wars and he found this team and you know these these are the groups of people who created photoshop like actually insane like the people who were working at ilm at the time were people who made video editing software who made um uh photoshop which isn't even sometimes isn't even used for film it can be used for multiple disciplines now but they had they are innovators through and through like if you haven't seen this series i and you really are interested i guess in learning more about vfx and the origins of the vfx company it is quite nerdy though i do i do stress that it is a very nerdy series um a lot of computer talk and um a lot of passion but I think that's why I enjoyed it so much because it was just people who were super nerdy and super passionate about what they do and it was just great it was like super cool and um it got me excited about VFX um again even though I already like if you guys know me then you know that I already am always passionate about VFX but it's it's great for for people to actually understand the comp side behind um CGI because I feel like people tend to forget that even though there are artists and animators these artists and animators wouldn't have had a platform without these humans behind the scenes uh creating the technology that they needed to to be able to draw this stuff and have this stuff and have the video editing uh audio editing uh because everything was done on film you got to remember and then they built things to make video editing because they had to like press together films together um different film uh tapes together to do like compositing right uh or comp and instead now we just do it all digitally with different layers on top of each other and like it's all these people at the time who realized that these were hard things to do and then made it easier through technology and through the use of computer science genuinely made it really cool and that was George Lucas's image all along for for ILM which I thought was really really cool and I think I would like more of an emphasis and a more of like an appreciation for those those computer scientists behind the scenes. I might be a little bit biased because I'm a computer scientist myself and I want the credit where credit is due um, for, for our little com comp sci community, specifically in film as well. Um, but, you know, I, I think it's, it's just an interesting thing not only to appreciate the artists who, I guess, create these things but the people who allowed these artists to create the things that they do and allow it to make their job easier for them in in, in the coming technology that's come come through that we'll talk about a little bit you know i loved um hearing about the hostility between like the practical effects uh, side versus like the com computational side of ilm when it was transitioning um it's quite it was quite interesting and there's so many fun anecdotes about People who were so intrinsically involved in the growth of ILM, just so cool. And like, one thing that that I I thought was really cool, which I don't know whether anyone else will find really cool, but understanding that Martin Scorsese, George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, and uh, Francis Ford Coppola were all friends, the powerhouses of people. I mean, genuinely shocked to my core. 
I mean, George Lucas and Spielberg, I can kind of understand, but like Francis Ford Coppola and Martin Scorsese too. Like when I saw Scorsese in the suit, I think he was in the suit. I don't remember, but I remember, I think, seeing his face. I was like, excuse me? You're here as well? That's kind of sick. But all these like super, super creative people and super talented at their craft all around each other around the same time just so cool so 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 cool again i'm freaking out i'm nerding out but it's great and you know if you want to know more about how films like star wars um et the poltergeist ghosts of the abyss terminator 2 jurassic park they even touch a bit on the mandalorian as well like check it out it's a good series i think it's a great um it's a great series it i feel like it targets both entry-level people into understanding what vfx is and also people who um people who know about vfx will want to like learn more like intensively more so you know give it a go check it out i think it's a great series um now, I wanted to talk a bit more about the technology, um, just just to give you like some fun facts about some technology that is uh, used today and the, some fun anecdotes behind it. Um, the one that I really love talking about always is The Irishman. So during The, uh, the Irishman is a film, I think also done by Scorsese, maybe it is a Scorsese film. I have to double check that. It might not be a Scorsese film, but I want to say it is for some reason. Um, and essentially The Irishman is a film about, um, mobsters and, but, you know, you have, like, the classic Pacino and De Niro in it, I think, but they wanted to, it was like a story of their whole life, and they wanted to de-age them, and typically whenever you do de-aging, um, work in, like, in the CGI industry or VFX industry, you have to do motion capture of the person's face and then have to, through this motion capture, you have to put dots on specific like areas of the face to capture the movement of specific areas of the face. But Al Pacino and De Niro being the humans that they are, well-respected in the industry, said, nah, <laughs> no, we're not going to, we don't, why, why should we, why do we have to use um, CG? Like, why do we have to use dots on our face? This is going to distract us from our, um, our acting and this, that, and the other. So they literally had to create a system, like, on the spot to try and, like, motion capture um, people without using the dots. And that is called the Medusa system. So I don't know. I thought that was a fun little anecdote to kind of talk about the Medusa system in the sense of the Irishman as a new technology that I, I have been like researching as well to do with um, visual effects. But then also, as I mentioned very early into the episode, uh, the volume and the volume is um, the Mandalorian uh, was used a lot on the Mandalorian. It, more recently, it was used on Thor Love and Thunder. Um, and it's essentially what George Lucas, this, it, it's shown towards the end of the, the um, ILM series, but it's essentially what George Lucas wanted vfx and visual effects and cg to get to the point you know of all these led so essentially the idea is it's this big dome that has like led screens on it that project the cg onto it with all the correct lighting and can be altered on the spot and whatnot and um it does like it it, it does that so that the um so that you can actually act in within the environment and actually capture the shots without having to guess 
where specific elements of CG are going to be for the background. Um, it's almost like matte painting on steroids because <laughs> it's like you can change it super easily and like um, the technology behind it is so cool. Like they've thought about parallax and like everything to do with it. Um, and this LED screen is um, hoping to be more wild, wild, wild? widely used instead of green and blue screens so this is a very very fresh new technology and also the volume has been good for um for using during covid times because um it meant that you were just in one environment like one step set location where all you got to do is just change the props in the volume and then voila like you're in a, you're in a new place and you can control covid regulations and that's great um, so again, very, very cool stuff. So, um, yeah, like these two technologies I think have just been some stuff, like two notable pieces of technology that I've been like super excited about within the VFX industry and the CG industry. So what do I want for the future of VFX? Now I always like to talk about the future because what is a Diesel Dieter podcast without me mumbling on about the future and what, what I feel like should happen. Uh, as if I have any weight or control over this. <laughs> um, but I feel like there should be more of an emphasis of quality over quantity. I always say this in every single episode that I do uh, in more recent terms. But I feel like there should be an emphasis of quality of CGI and CG work rather than quantity. And that comes down to are you properly planning your CG um, or your VFX um, before you shoot your film rather than thinking of it as an afterthought. And that's something I implore like all creatives to think about when they're thinking about making films. Um, and finally also, unionizing VFX workers so they don't be overworked. I think this is something that a lot of people have been talking about on social media, uh, about how overworked they, they seem to be and um, how dangerous it could be because they are a discipline in the film industry that are not unionized. And I think maybe it's a conversation that needs to be to dealt with uh, about maybe unionizing them. But I hope you have learned um, so much more about uh, the VFX industry and like, has it gotten worse? Do you think it has gotten worse? Do you feel like you've contextualized a little bit more what the definition of VFX is and like um, whether or not you feel like it is getting worse based on everything that I've said. Because I, I personally think that it hasn't gotten worse. I just feel like the, the standards that and the age that we live in mean that um, we're turning out more than we can cope with, which means that the quality is starting to suffer because of that. Does not necessarily mean that it is getting worse because I feel like we're at a time of some of the most innovative technologies have come around to help make CGI and VFX uh, easier. So um, that's something for you guys to think about. And I hope you've learned a lot more about VFX because um, I definitely did when, when doing this episode. And that's why I wanted to wait a little bit longer to release this episode because I wanted to make sure I was giving you an episode that I had researched very, very well. Um, so with that being said, I guess I... It is time to move on to the infamous segment of the show, the recommend or to the back end. So, this 
this week I actually have a recommended ending to the back end, but that's kind of that that kind of should should be the case because um I've I've been away for a bit, so I should probably have both. But surprise, surprise, none of them are a series, so I guess what's new here? Um, so I'll start with my to the back end. So my to the back end, I guess, is Purple Hearts, a Netflix film, um, a rom com based on a book, maybe. They always tend to be based on a book, so that's just a shot in the dark for me. Um, and it's essentially about <laughs> a liberal and a Republican. Uh, being forced into a marriage with each other to have mutual gain because one of them is in the military and they can get some form of benefits. And the the story follows that. And it's just weird. I mean, it's it's not like I I hate it, right? But it's not like I love it either. So maybe it's like a, a slight like over-the-shoulder one rather than like a I'm going to throw this as far as I can b- uh, behind me. Um, because... I sit on the fence because it was it was heartwarming in moments, but I couldn't get over the fact that their political views were so wildly different uh, within the film and like following on their story that it kind of threw me off a bit because in it, it doesn't feel like the foundations of a healthy relationship, in my opinion. Um, but yeah, like it's it's your typical cheese fest of romance that that you, that you want to get, and um, it's got some heartwarming moments in it as well. But personally, I just feel like you know it could have been better. We see a lot of I see a lot of these films so much so that Netflix just continuously recommends them to me. Um, <laughs> but it's you know it's just it didn't feel like it was adding anything interesting or new. It almost felt like it was promoting some form of toxicity to it um, in terms of the relationship that was, I guess, presented. But I loved the actress. She was great. The actor was the guy who was in the Camilla Cabello Cinderella, which it took me half the film to realize, which I shocked me to my core. Um, but yeah, that's uh, that's my to the back end. A little bit of like a just a, a brush to the off the shoulder to the back end rather than like throwing it, as I said. Now, my recommend is something that I think is still in cinemas at the moment, but it is Bullet Train. Now, Bullet Train is like, Bullet Train is the type of film that that you just really wouldn't expect as an August release. Not, not, I don't have anything against August releases, I'm just saying. I didn't expect it. It's kind of, kind of pops off, can't lie. Um, (laughs) But Bullet Train essentially has an A-list cast, like, actually a list cast like brad pitt aaron taylor johnson uh who else is in this film there are a lot of people joey king like so 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 many people that i recognize that i also might not know the name of because you know when you have that actor or actress where you've just seen them a lot but you don't know their name yeah that's that's that was me throughout a lot of this film um and it just worked like there is a lot of differing opinions about this film bear in mind like I know a lot of people are like eh, it's lazy it's just a train it's a generic typical action film but sometimes you just need that you need sometimes just to have like a, a an action film to just take you away from it all and have you immersed and like I it was so action-packed it felt like obviously in some points it was quite predictable in some points there were genuine moments where I was surprised by the plot but it felt like a great film and it made me excited to go and watch it in the cinema and it left me buzzing. <laughs> so it was great. 
Um, and overall, um, I think it is a great one to go and watch. Definitely check it out. Avoid anything you hear about it because it is genuinely a good one. So with that being said, I guess that takes us to the end of the episode. Thank you guys so much for, for listening, um, as always. And if you want to follow me on uh, social media, I think Instagram is the best place to, to get me at, at least with Dita on that. Um, I do have a Twitter. It is very dormant. So I think maybe Instagram is probably better. Um, if you want to share any of your opinions or uh, keep up to date of when I'm going to be releasing an episode, that's probably the best place to catch me. Uh, another great place to, to follow me on is Letterboxd. Uh, if you guys don't know what Letterboxd is, it is an amazing film watching uh, and logging platform where you can read reviews, rate films, and log all the films that you've ever seen in your life, which is actually great. Um, and I'm, I am uh, underscore Nandita to underscore on that. And um, what else? What else can you catch me on? I guess uh, next week's episode. Oh, I, I do want to talk a little bit about next week's episode. Next week's episode is going to be great because it's my first guest episode in a really, really long time. Um, so I'm back with a guest episode. And it is not a guest you've ever seen on the episode before, um, uh, on the podcast before. So I'm really, really excited to, to have this one. And um, she is an incredible human being that I've always wanted to be on the podcast uh, at some point. So I'm super, super stoked for you guys to hear that episode. Um, I won't tell you guys what it's about yet, but just know it's a great one. It's going to be good. Uh, and that should hopefully come out either next week or the week after. One or two weeks. We'll see how how it goes with both of our schedules. Um, but if you want to follow the podcast as well on the actual podcast listening platforms, Google Podcast, Spotify, Apple Podcast, Overcast, or basically wherever you listen to your podcast, follow the podcast there, subscribe, leave a five-star rating or review. Speaking of five-star ratings or reviews... I had one on, uh, goodness, what platform is it? Uh, the Apple Reviews uh, quite some time ago from a, a viewer that I'm going to read out if I can find it on my camera roll. And I thought it was great. And if you guys also want to, like, it makes more people find the podcast. So I'll, I'll read this one. It's kind of cute. It's from 2021, September of 2021. So I very much missed it at the time. But... Five stars saying, great podcast, great stuff, honestly. Love films and comic book movies in particular, so listening to this podcast on the long plane ride was great. Hey, that's great. I'm long plane ride material, guys. <laughs> Look at that. Um, definitely do leave reviews because they really do help uh, other people find the podcast. And stay tuned because I have so much lined up for the end of this year. So, so much to do with the podcast, to do with another thing that I'm working on, then another, another thing I'm working on. Uh, so stay tuned because we're only going to grow this year and I'm actually going to be consistent for once. So, <laughs> so thank you guys once again for listening and I will see you all next time. Bye everyone. Bye.